Hey there, and welcome to the podcast for Tuesday, February the 23rd. Coming up, we'll have the latest on this agreement between Facebook and the Australian government to return news to the social media giant, plus school principals and their concerns over distancing in class and the stress that's causing, plus plans for a Toronto eSports arena for 2025. All of that coming up right now on the pod. Well, Facebook today has said that they are going to lift its ban on Australians reading and sharing news on its site. Now, if you recall last week, Facebook, they made big headlines when they decided to block news after the Australian government passed a law that would make social media sites essentially pay for journalism. And for more on this, we're joined now by Ramona Pringle with Ryerson University. Ramona joins us here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Ramona, good afternoon. Hi, good afternoon. Appreciate you being here. Uh, Facebook says that they've reversed their decision after reaching an agreement with the Australian government. Is it clear what that agreement is yet? You know, a little bit. It's still a little it's still a little murky. Both sides have confirmed that they have come to this agreement. So we've heard from both Facebook and the government that they are in agreement about some amendments to the proposed legislation. And essentially what the changes are they just give Facebook a bit more wiggle room to comply and to demonstrate that, you know, for instance, they've signed enough deals with media outlets to pay them for content. Um, they've also agreed that digital platforms will have a month's notice before they're formally designated under the code. So before there's arbitration, before they're forced to pay for displaying news content. Um, and so essentially it's just finding uh, an arrangement that both sides are um, comfortable with, I guess. You know, Facebook's vice president for news partnership noted that the deal allows the company to choose which publishers it will support and says that includes small and local ones. Um, But, you know, it means that they're not just going to be paying for every bit of news on the platform, but they'll have the ability to form those relationships. All right. So is this being seen as a victory by the Australian government and by uh, those that uh, produce and uh, pay for the uh, journalism? Well, I think it is in that, um, you know, it's, it's certainly, um, it's, it's certainly historic, right? They're, they're first out of the gate in terms of trying uh, to make these moves and they see themselves, um, you know, the Australian uh, uh, politicians at the center of this have said it's a proxy battle for the rest of the world on regulation of Facebook or even of Google uh, and that it is a model that could be emulated elsewhere, right? There's sort of a playbook now for how it's been implemented. Uh, and I think, it's been a bit more of a struggle getting Facebook to comply, but certainly, you know, with Google, they saw Google right away uh, starting to negotiate with um, different me- uh, media organizations in Australia, large companies, smaller companies. So I think it is a victory in that it is an evolution of the relationship between social media and news, which we know is so uh inherent, right? Anyone who uses social media knows that news is all over it. And anyone who works in news knows how much, you know, how reliant news has become on those social media platforms or on Google for people to discover their content. And so there is that symbiotic relationship. But essentially what was at the core of this issue was whether it was ultimately symbiotic, right? Whether it was actually a fair exchange of value or whether 
um, and this is the argument that the Australian government was making, the platforms were benefiting more and that they had this substantial market power that meant, um, you know, the news companies didn't have the capacity to demand a better deal. And that's where they stepped in um, with legislation. You know, Ramona, this seems to me very reminiscent of the argument that went on between the music industry and file sharing services like at Napster oh so uh, long ago. Is there a direct parallel there between that and what we're seeing with social media sites like Facebook and journalistic institutions? That is a really interesting argument. And, you know, the, the, what, we, what was central uh, to the debate around music in the early days of the Internet was that information wants to be free. And that is the ethos of the Internet, right, is that information can be anywhere and anyone can have access to it. But then there is the sort of sticky point of creators getting compensated for the work that they make or the work that they produce. And also... Um, you know, in the case of, of news media, that there is this essential role that they play in society and to be able to support that when these companies profit so hugely um, based on, you know, people sharing content on their platforms. So it's interesting. I think that there definitely are a lot of analogies. And the reality is that the music industry has really had to pivot in terms of where money comes from. It really suffered when album sales, you know, once they weren't able to make their money off of the product in the same way. And then we saw the you know rise of mega mega concerts worth millions of dollars, uh, and you know Taylor Swift and the likes with these you know that that was really their money making engine. Um, but it is it, you know it's always a challenge of how do you make money on the internet, analog dollars to digital pennies. Uh, so there are definitely similarities, but at the same time, I think maybe one of the biggest differences between then and now is the fact that there is platform dominance. You know when. Mm-hmm. When uh, the when the the battle was going on around music, Napster was around. Right? It was a totally different era. There wasn't a ma- there wasn't massive players like Facebook with two billion plus users. There wasn't Google with this global dominance that they have. And that's ultimately the difference between then and now, and what's really changed the playing field. Because yeah, and how concerning? Sort of interrupt, but how concerning is that, Ramona? Because I really wanted to kind of focus on that uh, for a second here, because I think what we've seen in Australia with Facebook over the last week or so is just how reliant people are on that as a news source and whether or not that's concerning. Absolutely. You know, it is concerning. And I think that that's why so many governments are starting to look into regulating these platforms, because they do have so much um, power. And, you know, just the fact that Facebook took the move of blocking Internet, you know, imagine waking or not Internet news from from Facebook. Imagine waking up one morning and not seeing uh, news or not being able to share news uh, on Facebook. It was a power play on their part um, and really flexing their muscles in reaction to attempted regulation that they didn't see favorably. And so it is this battle of might, I think, that's going on right now between government and corporations. And and it is concerning because um, they do have so much power in terms of how people are able to access uh, access news, access information. You know, it's worth noting that when this happened, it wasn't just the news sites were blocked. In the process, a number of government health and emergency pages were also blocked. And Facebook later asserted that this was a mistake. Uh, but, you know, it's because they've got an algorithm that's making these, that's implementing these decisions. And so it can often be a bit of a broad brush when they're fine-tuning things and first implementing these processes. 
And, you know, we've seen it happen before in, in similar kind of instances. But that's definitely concerning um, is just, you know, all of a sudden people didn't have access even to government uh, government websites. Sure. And so it's just it's, it, it is when they are, um, you know, the first place people turn to. On one hand, they can make the argument that says we're the first place that people turn to. We're the reason that they're accessing your news. Um, but on the other hand, is that concerning in terms of you know, even democracy, as we've seen over the last half decade. Yeah. And should the mainstream media have seen this coming? Should they have been more proactive rather than allowing Facebook to become kind of the uh, dominant uh, news source, if you will, for uh, so many people? I mean, journalism is obviously uh, important. You could probably argue it's more important than ever, particularly from really trusted uh, sources. But that does cost uh, money. I mean, it is a uh, labor-intensive endeavor to do really good uh, journalism. And should uh, mainstream media have seen this coming and kind of stem the tide? And do you think maybe the genie's out of the bottle already? Well, you know, it's, it's hard to put the onus entirely on the media because not only does it take money to... Um, you know, produce good journalism. It also takes money to build a platform that can be competitive with Facebook. There's this um, concept of the network effect, and it's really why it becomes so hard to compete with the likes of Facebook. And the idea of the network effect is that when everything and everyone is in your network can be found in this one centralized, convenient place, why would you go somewhere else, right? So if you turn on Facebook, open up Facebook and your friends are there, your colleagues are there, the businesses that you frequent are there, and all of the news that you want is there, why would you go to a, a you know standalone website for other information when everything is in this one centralized place? And for any one news organization to have built something that would have been competitive would have also taken a lot of resources. And yeah, hindsight is twenty twenty, and maybe it would have been worth it. Maybe there would have been some way for news organizations to work together and build some kind of consortium, uh, almost like a you know a cable bundle. Um, but uh, you know, yeah, but, you know, it seems to me, Ramona, it's not only Facebook, Apple as well. They want you part of their ecosystem using their phones, their laptops, uh, their tablets, and, of course, uh, Apple News, uh, Apple Music and everything. They, they just want to become kind of that uh, one-stop shop, uh, if you will. And do you think that uh, this decision or at least this agreement between the Australian government and Facebook uh, today, is it setting, uh, I don't know, some sort of precedent for, uh, you know, us here in Canada and elsewhere when it comes to uh, news? and social media? I think it does, because while these platforms are um, extremely powerful and while they do have, you know, there is that network effect, while they are, you know, where people will click onto and access through the portal that people will get other information through, uh, the reality is they're nothing without the content that's posted on them, right? What is Facebook if all of a sudden people aren't sharing photos or aren't sharing news? And so they are extremely reliant on that news content. And I think to start to establish it's hard right it's hard to implement rules when those rules didn't exist when a company was first created but is it too late i think there's a reason that we're seeing such a you know such fiery moves being made is that you've got a powerful player um you know an, an argument between adults if you would as opposed to between a parent and child which would have been the case if the rules already existed when the platforms were just being created but i do think um i do think it's a good move and i do think it sets a precedent in that 
uh, you know, hopefully this is not just news creators that are now compensated for content, but we really start thinking about how people are compensated for content. Maybe it even gets individual users thinking about their data a little bit more and the fact that they're giving all of this information away for free, essentially. In exchange, they get to use the platform, but Facebook is really profiting. So what are those exchanges of value between, you know, Facebook or Google, the companies that they're, you know, sharing content from, but also the users as well. Ramona, some great insight. Really appreciate the time with us this afternoon. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Have a great day. You as well. There goes Ramona Pringle with Ryerson University on this agreement struck earlier today between the Australian government and Facebook when it comes to using uh, news and sharing news on the social media platform. The group People for Education, they've just released a brand new survey today of school administrators and their biggest concerns when it comes to educating during the pandemic. And here to share some of the results is Annie Kidder, the head of People for Education. She joins us once again here on Global News Radio. Annie, good afternoon. Good afternoon. All right. Very interesting uh, survey. Uh, Let's run down some of the results, not the least of which is it's this physical distancing, trying to keep the kids, the students uh, apart that is uh, creating the most stress and concern for administrators. Absolutely. That's for administrators of in-person schools. Um, We asked them about a lot of things. We asked them about whether or not they felt their, their level of stress at work was manageable, and uh, definitely the principles of virtual schools, so schools where it's all online, and some of those schools have 40,000 students in them, if you can believe it. Um, They definitely, the majority said no, they disagreed that their their level of stress was manageable. But in terms of the the issues, the top issues that they're dealing with um, in the schools, it is physically distancing in the in-person schools, it's um, uh, coordinating staffing making sure there is enough staffing in all three kinds of schools, in-person, hybrid, and uh, virtual, um, and dealing with or managing student enrollment. So in virtual schools, kids are, um, and hybrid, likely to be coming in and out, you know, sometimes in virtual school, sometimes back to in-person school. So, I, and I think overall, it's that there are a lot of challenges on top of what was already a pretty full plate that principals had, a pretty, a, a, quite a challenging job. Um, one principal or a few talked about, now I'm the COVID police. And it, so that they're dealing with, they have to make sure that every self-screening form is validated for every single student and staff every single day. They ne- don't necessarily have to do it personally, but they have to make sure it happens. Um, they are going to have to report once a week uh, the schools that have done that are doing asymptomatic testing, which is five percent of the schools. Principals will be responsible for that too. So overall, they're saying, "Are we love our jobs? We care about our jobs." Um, But now that we've added all of these extra things um, to do with COVID, um, first of all, could we not have any new initiatives? And second of all, could we take away some of the kind of ongoing paperwork that maybe is not so necessary uh, right now? Yeah, I can only imagine the stress as a school administrator, as a principal, even a teacher right there on the front lines, trying to keep students physically distanced 
And in the back of your mind, you're thinking, if I don't, if uh, one of these uh, kids is asymptomatic or is uh, a spreader uh, right now, I mean, do we all of a sudden have an outbreak in my class, in this school? Are we having to phone uh, parents and uh, quarantining and isolating? That is a lot of responsibility, a lot of stress. And Annie, does that speak to just how important this testing is and also to classroom size, particularly when it comes to stress related to in-class learning? Well, it, yes, it does. But and I think it's important for all of us to remember that at the same time, everybody's concerned about kids learning, too, so that they, the day-to-day kind of job of education has, has not gone away, thank goodness, nor should it have. So the stress of COVID, um, which, you know, everybody's feeling in every job, but for principals who are uh, responsible for all of their staff and all of their students, that stress is certainly added. And the, the principals definitely said, we asked them for, you know, give us one recommendation for a change. And one of those, you know, a common one did have to do with um, with class size, with ensuring that um, that that we had the sort of policy in place to make it easier to keep those physical distances and to keep kids safe. Yeah, Annie, are we doing enough to support teachers, principals, and administrators uh, and help them uh, through this and to navigate this stress? Nope. <laughs> in a word, research says no, we're not. So, and I think that this report makes that really, really clear. Um, the principals are, you know, everybody in the system is trying as hard as they can. Uh, the principals say they need clearer and more consistent communication. They really do not want to keep on reading about new policies uh, in the media or hearing about it on the news before they've been told. Uh, themselves, so then then they have parents phoning them and going, I hear we've changed to this, except the principals have just heard about it too. Um, they need, um, they do need more resources. So um, teachers, everybody has been saying this from the very beginning, we have to make sure there are sufficient teachers to keep class sizes down, sufficient supply teachers when uh, teachers have to stay home, or teachers or support staff have to stay home, which you do if you have a runny nose. Um, we have to make sure that all the, the other supports are in there, educational assistants, child and youth workers, people to make sure that kids are able to keep learning. They also talked about time and they went, this is, these are extraordinary times we're in. We need more time to be able to plan and collaborate with teachers. Some of them even suggested, you know what, the first period of every day shouldn't be a teaching period. It should be a time for us to figure out all these new things we're supposed to be doing and work together. And they, and that, I think that, you know, for us then overall, what part of one of the solutions to this is, as I've said before on your show, <laughs> pulling together, putting together, convening a, an advisory education task force with everybody at the table. So the principals, the teachers, the support staff, students, directors of education, but also the people from health so that the, the health, health and education are working together as they're developing plans and policies and next steps um, for the coming months, because it's not this is not going to disappear uh, in the next minute. But I think that, it, you know, it, it was amazing how many principals wrote comments on their surveys. Hundreds and hundreds of them did very, very long ones. And it felt a little bit like a, a sort of cry for help. It's like we're doing this job. We love this job. We really, really care about it. Um, but it's not sustainable to keep working this way. 
Just finally, before I let you go, Annie, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you for your take on just how reopening schools have gone over the last uh, week or two. Return to uh, in-class uh, learning. There have been uh, some COVID cases uh, reported with uh, the testing, the asymptomatic testing program now put in schools. But overall, just uh, how's your feeling about the return to class? Well, it, it seems okay. It'll be interesting once the testing is, is across the province in 5% of the schools, you know, that we'll be able to see what the kind of levels are. But the big unknown out there are the variants of concern, as you know. So um, what's going to, will there be a third wave? What does that mean? So for us and for all the health people, the biggest thing is keep schools open, but don't open up everything else at the same time. All right. We say this time and time again, teaching, it's uh, one of the most important and one of the toughest jobs out there. Annie, thank you so much, as always, for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Okay. Bye-bye. There's the head of People for Education, Annie Kidder, with us. Okay. A group calling themselves Overactive Media, they have just announced plans for a new, okay, this is an eye popper, this price tag, a new $500 million eSports stadium for us right here in Toronto. Pretty big investment for what is considered a pretty big and growing industry. And for more on this, joining us now is Sarah Wagg, manager of the eSports Arena at Durham College. And Sarah joins us now here on Global News Radio. Sarah, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, first off, can you tell us what you know about this uh, proposed eSports stadium, uh, where it's going to be, how big it's going to be, that sort of thing? It's going to be taking place in Toronto on the Exhibition Place grounds, which is something that we're still waiting for approval on and should get in early March, which will be exciting news to see if it does happen. It's estimated to seat about 7,000 people, which is a great mid-sized venue. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, that 7,000-seater. Uh, Certainly a, a little less than, say, Scotiabank uh, Arena with uh, 20,000 seats for uh, basketball and hockey. Is that just kind of a statement on where esports is right now as a spectator a sport? We have seen esports arenas of similar size in the United States, and they do tend to sell out when there are home games taking place. The idea of this space is esports is starting to franchise and follow that traditional sports model. Toronto has an Overwatch team, Toronto Defiant, and a Call of Duty team, Toronto Ultra. And the idea is that Toronto fans will be able to go to this spectator space and watch their home teams play and cheer them on. All right. Can you give us a little insight for those that don't really follow esports as to what the spectator experience is like? I mean, I think people kind of know what going to a hockey game or a basketball game, a Leaf or a Raptors game is like, but how does going to watch esports, how does that differ? I would say it's a mix between going to a sports game and going to the movies. These esports athletes, they make six figures, so it's considered a, a full-time career for these people. So if you're going to the space, you'll take a seat, you'll grab your popcorn, you'll see the 5v5 or 6v6 players sitting up on the stage with the flashy LED lights. There'll be a huge broadcast screen where you can see what is taking place in the game, and there'll also be commentators, color casters, and analysts very similar to you would with traditional sports. And do the esports athletes, do they react similar to maybe how the Leafs and the Raptors players might uh, when the crowd gets into it? <laughs> you know, it's not lost to me, by the way, as we discuss this. It's been some time uh, since anybody could go watch uh, a hockey game, basketball game, or esports uh, for that matter. But do they react, these esports athletes, as similar to, say, hockey or basketball players, that they really thrive off the buzz in the building and the crowd? 
100%. During gameplay, they're zoned in on what they're doing, same as traditional sport athletes. But when you get that touchdown, when you get that score, that's when they really pop off. They jump up from their seat. They're high-fiving their teammates, making the rounds of hugs, and really trying to get that crowd going. And how much growth has eSports seen, in particular, this last year, uh, Sarah? Is there any way to quantify that? Because obviously a lot of people have been quarantining. We've had a lockdown here in Toronto for some time. Has video games and eSports seen a real explosion in the last 12 months? Year on year, we've seen growth, but this year it's been the most explosive growth. It's one of the few recreational hobbies you can continue to do while you are from home. You can still play games. You can still watch games. And platforms that facilitate this, things like Twitch or YouTube, they've seen so much growth within the gaming industry as well because more people are at home trying to partake or consume their content. So people should not be shocked to hear a $500 million esports arena might be coming to the city of uh, Toronto. And obviously this is still some time uh, out before it's uh, built and uh, ready to go. But uh, do you figure by that time, maybe in a couple of years, I mean, esports will be even that much bigger? We've already seen esports events in Canada with over 72 million viewers online. So to be able to give them a place to physically come, I think the tourism industry in Toronto is going to love it. All right, I wanted to ask you, too, about uh, esports and its uh, growth when it uh, comes to those watching uh, from home. Because uh, ESPN, is, I'm sure you're well aware, I mean, they made some pretty bold claims a couple of years ago that they were really going to invest when it came to programming, sports programming in esports. And there was a recent article in the Washington Post that said that that is kind of uh, dried up or it has uh, not really come to fruition the way they, they thought it might. Uh, where do things sit when it comes to esports as a, a, a television sport? We have seen some success when it comes to television style support. If you're following the progression of a league, if you're following the progression of specific teams, but as one-off events, it's very difficult TV-wise or media-wise when there's no build-up to that one event. So things like franchised Overwatch League or Toronto Ultra, which OAM is targeting, it has that progression where you can follow your favorite teams week and week until they make it to the finals. But it's been difficult because when you look at esports broadcasts, you would assume to follow the traditional sports style of media but we've noticed over time it needs a little bit of tweaking there's a different way that gamers consume media compared to the average sports fan so it's been a couple of growing pains as we go through this process okay that's really interesting how do gamers consume uh, their sport in tv a little differently because you know we see this with you know nfl football uh, ufc uh, hockey there's uh, you know the pregame hype and all the panels and all the talk and then the build-up and the actual game. And then, of course, there's the post-game and everybody has to analyze everything in every little play. Is there some things from that sort of sports playbook, televising or television sports playbook that esports needs to draw from, do you think? I love the format. I think the format should stay the same as the traditional sports because you get that pregame, during game, in between game breaks, the analysis of the players, the plays being made, why they are the 1%. But when you think about gamers, most of the time they're at their computer or at their console, so they're already not at their TV, which is the traditional source of media for 
television, and because they're always at their PC, they have the ability to click away and switch to something else anytime there's a break, so it's harder to keep them engaged when everything is at their fingertips. I was going to say, when you broadcast eSports, do you have to be that much more immersive, that more, much more interactive, because that's what that audience is used to? It's not uncommon to see stream giveaways or polls popping up on your stream to ask you questions about what you think is going on, what predictions there might be, anything to keep players or spectators on that stream and continuously engaging. Yeah, give us an idea in the next five, ten years, just finally here, Sarah, as we see a $500 million eSports arena earmarked for Toronto. Where do you see eSports in the next uh, half decade or decade? Is it going to be as big as, say, the NFL or UFC? I think it'll be difficult to be the same scale as the NFL or UFC because there's so many different game titles and each game has a different following or consumer base that likes to partake. But I do think it's going to be a lot more ingrained in entertainment. I think that the negative stigma that has been attached to gaming previously will start to fade away as it becomes a common household term. And more educational institutes like Durham are putting up these graduate certificates or programs to allow students to work in this industry. As the industry grows, there's going to be more jobs and more opportunities to get involved. I think it's only going up from here. All right, Sarah, really appreciate the time with us this afternoon. Thanks so much for joining us on the program. Thank you so much. There is Sarah Wagg. She is the manager of the eSports Arena at Durham College on, yeah, again, just announced yesterday a f- plans for a $500 million eSports stadium for Toronto on the Exhibition Place grounds.